Today's scripture comes from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 9 through 13. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, if you're joining us uh, for the first time today, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Exilic, and we just finished a uh, teaching series uh, on a poem in the Bible called The Song of Songs, and if you're not familiar with The Song of Songs, it's basically about the journey of a couple that is in love before they're married and after they're married and all of their ups and downs. And um, while the poem does cover a lot about the complexities of a relationship, it doesn't cover everything. And so what we're doing for the next couple weeks is an appendix to the Song of Songs where we're talking about singleness, marriage, and parenting. Parenting in particular, we've never done something on before. Uh, last week we talked about singleness. Today we're talking about marriage. Now, when, whenever married couples hear a sermon on singleness, the temptation for married couples is to tune out because they no longer think that singleness applies to them. Now let me tell you why that's unwise. Uh, it's unwise because of my grandmother. My grandmother was single for the first 25, 26 years of her life. Then she was married for about 32, 33 years. And then after my grandfather died, she became a widow and still has been a widow for the past 40 years, which means that she has been single longer post-marriage than she was ever married. And so just because you're married right now, uh, it doesn't mean that you're gonna be married in perpetuity. Eventually, one day, one of you will be single again. I know that when we're married, we, you know, we kind of think that we're gonna go out like Romeo and Juliet and die together, or like the couple in the notebook and go out that way, but very rarely does that ever happen. You throw in kids, grandkids, it complicates the situation even more. So just because you're married, it doesn't mean that a sermon on singleness doesn't apply to you. It does. And just because you're single, it doesn't mean that, uh, even though we're talking about marriage today, it doesn't mean that this sermon doesn't apply to you because I know that many of you have aspirations of getting married one day. And so it would be wise to also listen to a sermon on marriage. And I say this in particular if you're single because sometimes single people think that marriage is heaven and singleness is hell. And I have to tell you that sometimes marriage can be a worse type of hell than singleness ever was. It is better to be single and quote unquote lonely than married and miserable. Because there is a type of loneliness you can experience when you're married that is far more brutalizing than when you're single. This is why the philosopher Socrates once humorously said, by all means get married. If you find a good husband or a good wife, you'll be happy. If you find a bad husband or a bad wife, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> marriage is not easy. 
Marriage is very, very hard. And I think what we all want for everyone in our church, whether you're married, engaged, or dating, is not only to have a relationship that barely survives, but what we want for all of you is to have a marriage or a relationship uh, that thrives. And so let me begin by saying something very simple, yet hopefully somewhat profound, and that is this. The key to having a healthy relationship is by having a healthy vertical relationship with God. If you have a healthy vertical relationship with God, you will have a healthy horizontal relationship with your spouse. And on the flip side, if you have an unhealthy relationship with God, chances are you will have an unhealthy relationship with your spouse. Put it another way, I have never met a couple that has an unhealthy horizontal relationship with one another, but have a very healthy relationship with God vertically. Never met a couple like that. And so what that means then is that a successful marriage looks like this, a triangle between God, your spouse, and you. So here's a question. How can we foster then a healthy triangular relationship between God, our spouse, and us? And that is what the sermon is about. So turn with me to verse nine of your bulletin. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Now what does Jesus mean in the last phrase when he says, remain in my love? Well, let me pose it in the form of a question. How good are you at keeping in touch with people that don't live near you? I think a lot of us are pretty bad. And the reason for that is because when something's out of sight, it's out of mind. And you know what? It's not that different with God. Because God is out of sight, it's very easy to have God out of our minds. But when Jesus says, remain in my love, what he is saying is this, intertwine your life with my life. Like two cords intertwined together to form a tightly bound rope. Intertwine your life with my life. And to put John 15 more in context, more than half of the Gospel of John is about the last week of Jesus' life. And so he knows that death is looming. And so when Jesus is saying, remain in my love, he's basically saying this, don't be disconnected from me, don't ditch me, don't abandon me, stay with me, stay, uh, stay in my love, remain here. And one of the ways that we do that is by thinking about him, spending time with him, giving him attention, meditating about him, communing with him, dwelling with him, and abiding with him. So when you become a Christian and you enter into a relationship with God then, there is a union that takes place between the two of you. And similarly, when a husband and a wife say, I do, the two become one flesh. There is a union that takes place between the two people. I've been doing this union thing for a couple of few years with Hannah, and because we've been doing this union thing for a little bit now, I know exactly how she thinks. She knows exactly how I think. And because of that, you can say that she is in me and I am in her. We are uh, unionized, there's one flesh. And similarly, when we enter into a relationship with God, there is a union that takes place. He is in us and we are in him. Did you know that the word Christian in the Bible only appears three times? More often than not, the phrase the Bible prefers to describe our relationship with God is not the word Christian, but more often than not, the phrase the Bible prefers for our relationship with God is someone that is in Christ. 
which appears over 160 times, 164 to be exact, that we are in Christ, Christ is in us. There is a union that, take pla- that takes place. And one of the best analogies to describe this union that we have with God is between that of a husband and a wife. Now, there is a distinction, however, between our union with God and our communion with God. Just like there is a distinction between our union with our spouse and our communion with our spouse. In his very famous book, Communion with God, John Owen makes the distinction between our union with Christ and our communion with him. And he says that our union with Christ is something that is fixed, unchangeable, unalterable. But our communion with Jesus is very changeable, very alterable, and is not fixed at all. And similarly, when it comes to our marriages, our union is fixed, unchangeable, unalterable. But when it comes to our communion with our spouse, not fixed very changeable and very alterable. Uh, If you look on the first page of your bulletin, I wanna read you something from Diane Soli. And she says, love doesn't commit suicide. We have to kill it, though it often simply dies of our neglect. And this not only applies to our relationship with God, but it also applies to our relationship with our spouses. And so here's the question, how do we foster then a healthier communion with God and healthier communion with our spouse? Turn to verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. There it is. How do you foster a healthy relationship with God? with Jesus by obeying his commands. And while there are a lot of commands in the Bible, there is one command that trumps them all. And it is the command to love one another. And specifically in the context of marriage, to love our spouse. And if you take a look at verse 12, it says this, my command is this, love each other just as I have loved you. We love one another, we love our spouses because God loves us. Now here's a question. The pickle, how do we love our spouses when they annoy us? How do we love our spouses when they kind of irritate us? How do we love our spouses when they act the way that they act? You only see them on Sundays. I actually have to live with them. So how do I act lovingly then? Well, I like what Tim Keller says on the first page of your bulletin from the, his book, The Meaning of Marriage, when he, t- when he says this. The Bible explains why the quest for compatibility seems to be so impossible. As a pastor, I have spoken to thousands of couples, some working on marriage seeking, some working on marriage sustaining, and some working on marriage saving. I've heard them say over and over, love shouldn't be this hard. It should come naturally. In response, I always say something like, why believe that? Would someone who wants to play professional baseball say it shouldn't be so hard to hit a fastball? Would someone who wants to write the greatest American novel say it shouldn't be hard to create believable characters and compelling narrative? The understandable retort is, but this is not baseball or literature, this is love. Love should come just naturally if two people are compatible, if they are truly soulmates. But the Christian answer to this is that no two people are compatible. When two sinners say I do, conflict is inevitable. Conflict 
will happen, even with the godliest of couples. Uh, not only in the worst marriages, but also in the best. And it is precisely during these moments that we have to remember that when we don't feel particularly loving toward our spouse, even though we don't feel like it, we still have to act like it. And here's one of the keys. If you wait to feel lovingly before you act lovingly, you might never act lovingly. But if you act lovingly, even though you don't feel lovingly, the feelings of love will usually follow your actions of love. So we have to learn how to act lovingly even though we don't feel like it. Augustine, the North African theologian, once said that the moment we wake up, our hearts are in the default position of jumbo shrimp where we are curved in on ourselves. He called it incurvates in se, where our hearts are curved in on ourselves and we are perpetual navel gazers, where we don't look at the needs of others, but we're constantly only thinking about ourselves. And the danger with that is that there is someone that lives with you, that is a part of you, that has a union with you, that needs your love um, just as much as you need their love. And so one of the books that we go over uh, for premarital counseling called What Did You Expect by the preeminent counselor, Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp says to treat our marriages like a garden. If you want to grow a garden, you have to pay careful attention to it. You have to water it. You have to tend it. The moment you begin to neglect this garden, that is the moment weeds begin to grow up. Plants need daily love. And similarly, it is with our marriages. The moment you begin to neglect it, you stop paying attention to it, you stop tending this garden called marriage, that is precisely the moment that weeds begin to sprout up. Tripp goes on to say that things in a marriage don't go bad in an instant. They go bad progressively. And similarly, it is with marriage. Things don't go bad in marriage instantaneously, but things go bad progressively, drip by drip by drip. And so Tripp says, Tripp says that not putting in work never works. So we have to constantly be at work in our marriages. And by the way, we have to constantly be at work with our relationship with God because every relationship takes work. They don't just happen naturally. So here's a question. How do we do that? And what does it even look like? Well, at the very least, let me say it's two things. Number one, it's by doing the little things. And number two, it's by noticing the little things. Not the big things, but the little things. And I am about to do something that I should never do when a person public speaks, and that is to read you something very, very, very long. So long that it could not fit in your bulletin. And so um, I'm going to try and do this. our mission statement does have the word think twice, so I think we can handle it. This is uh, by an author named Melissa Edgington, and her piece is called, If You're Looking for Romance, It's Probably Right in Front of You. And this is what she says. And then it hit me. What has romanced me this year isn't flowers or nights out or even the beautiful diamond ring that my husband splurged on me at Christmas although I am never one to discourage or turn down diamonds. What has made me feel cared for this year is something that goes much deeper than gifts. The truth is that while I was searching for some grand romantic gesture, I realized that one reason 
happy and feel loved and adored by my husband is that I decided years ago to try not to miss what's right in front of me every single day. Like the way he reaches over and grabs my hand when he's driving. The way that he saves the last of the whipped cream for me. Or the way he picks up my favorite drink when he's at the grocery store. The way he holds me close at night and makes me laugh even though I'm half asleep. The way he always asks if I'm getting sick when I clear my throat. The way he tells me that things aren't as fun when I'm not there. Or the way he overlooks it when I snap at him for no reason. Those are a few of the little things that actually end up being big things in the end. And that doesn't even include all of the other ways that he loves me, like working hard for our family, pointing me to Christ every day, adoring our kids, trying to keep his mind and heart pure, spurring me on to follow my dreams, helping me see my own gifts from God. Someday when I'm sitting in a rocking chair looking back over our life together, it won't be the big trips or the diamond rings that I remember most. It'll be all the little things. The small gestures that he makes every day to communicate how much he loves me. So if you're searching for romance in your marriage, chances are you're ignoring the most romantic things about your life. Stop and think about it and appreciate all of the little ways that you are being romanced every day. I promise it'll make marriage more fun and meaningful if you do. Be grateful for what you have and stop pining for a version of marriage that Hollywood dreamed up. One of the challenges that we have as married couples, and for those of you who have aspirations of being married, is to, in many ways, treat our marriages like brushing our teeth. You can't brush your teeth once and expect to have fresh breath for the rest of your life. Brushing your teeth is a daily activity. And similarly, you can't just love your spouse once and expect them to feel loved for the rest of their lives. It is a daily activity that we must do. And when you do this, not only will your spouse be happier, but so will you. And so read with me verse 11. Verse 11, Jesus says, I have told you this. The reason why I'm saying all this, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy uh, may be complete. The reason why Jesus to tell, tells us to love one another and tells us to love our spouses is so that we would be happier. This, this verse right here, this is the original happy wife, happy life. The happier your spouse is, the happier and easier your life will be. And to put it more in the context of marriage even more so, there is never a winner and a loser in marriage. You're either both winners or you're both losers. And the reason for that is because you're one flesh. You're one team. There's a union that takes place. So if you wreck your partner in an argument, you destroy them for what they did, and you call them out and you're right, you know what? You might have won the argument, but you lost a person. And you know what? When you lose a person, you lose too. There is never a winner and a loser in a marriage. You're either both winners or you're both losers, which is why Jesus says, love the other person, because it's not only good for them, but it's simultaneously also good for you. William Temple once said that sin, and I love this definition, he said sin is the suicidal action of the will against yourself. When we sin, we not only hurt other people, but you also hurt yourself. 
It is the suicidal act of the will against yourself. Now we have to be careful here because we can't make our own personal joy the sole motivation behind why we love our spouse. Joy is a byproduct of loving our spouse, but it cannot be the sole motivation behind why we love our spouses because at that moment then it's just pragmatic and it still is self-centered. Joy is a byproduct. It should never be the sole motivation. So what should the sole motivation be? Take a look with me at nine. Verse nine, it says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Verse 12 and 13, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. And what these verses are saying is this, the primary motivation for why you should love your spouse, the way that you should, even to the point of giving your life, the primary reason for that, the primary motivation is because this is the way that I have loved you. So how can you be stingy with your love toward your spouse? You can't. In 1984, there was a song that came out called, I Wanna Know What Love Is and I Want You to Show Me. And this is a very cheesy way of saying that in Christianity, Jesus shows us what love is on the cross where he not only lays down his life for his friends, but he goes as far as to lay down his life for his enemies. And for those of you who don't know much about the cross other than some Jewish man who hung naked 2,000 years ago, let me help us dive deeper into what the cross is really all about by capturing your imaginations with a story. Some years ago, there was a family from Madison, Wisconsin that wanted to escape the freezing cold and went to Florida for vacation. Tragically, on that family vacation, their one and only daughter drowned in the pool. All of us experience pain in this life. None of us are immune to pain. But perhaps one of the most painful experiences you can experience in this life is when you lose one of your children. There is nothing as excruciating as that. But there was a silver lining to this story because their daughter donated her organs after she died. Some years later, the father returned to Florida to raise awareness about organ donation. And when he landed at the airport, there was a man there that was waiting for him. And this stranger embraced the father. And the stranger took out a stethoscope from the back of his pocket. He put one end in the father's ears and he put the other end on his heart so that the father could hear his heartbeat. And he told the father, this is your daughter's heart. Because she died, I have life. The whole point of the cross is this, there's a heart transplant that takes place where Jesus takes our filthy, dark hearts that are broken and he plants it in himself. And he takes his pure working heart, perfect heart, and he plants it in us. And you know why he does that? The reason why he does that is because your primary love language is not words of affirmation, gifts of service, quality time. Your primary love language is self-love. There is no one that loves you more than yourself. But on the cross, Jesus dies selflessly 
by giving up his heart and planting it in you. And so you know what that means, husbands? It is your number one job to make sure your wife feels the heartbeat of this new heart that you have every single day. And wives, it is your number one job to make sure your husband feels this new heart that you have and the heartbeat of this heart every single day. Without this, I don't know where else we're gonna draw the resources to love one another because there will be times where our tank becomes empty of love. There is only one thing that can fill up that tank and is understanding how loved you really are by God. And when you understand how loved you are by God, so much that he would give up his life for you, it will well up and overflow into your love for your spouse. And the way that you do that is by remaining in him, not disconnecting yourself from him. I wanna read one final quote from Alan Noble in a book that he wrote, Disruptive Witness, which I think was my favorite book that I read last year. And Noble begins by talking about Ernest Becker who won a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, book um, some years ago called The Denial of Death. But he says, Ernest Becker argues that the modern relationship is all many of us have left after the so-called death of God. When another human being looks directly into your eyes and confesses her self-giving love to you for life, that is a profound affirmation of your existence. In the church, we believe that marriage reflects something of the relationship with Christ and his church. And so we have a way of explaining why marriage feels so validating. It is an echo of Christ's justification of his church. But it is only an echo because unlike Christ, no human relationship can bear the burden of Godhead. And the attempt has to take its toll on some way on both parties. If you look to any other person to give your life justification and meaning, you will eventually resent them and leave disillusioned. Yet this myth, this vision of fullness, continues to be one of the most enduring in the West. And we have seen this myth repeated in a million stories so that no matter how many times we personally experience its emptiness, we still find it alluring. But we know where we can be filled and it is ultimately in God himself. No, no other person can bear the full weight of who we are, certainly no human, but God can. And so the point of our earthly marriages is really to point to the greatest love story of all, and that is the story of God's love for us. But your marriages can only tell about that great love story to the degree that your own marriages are healthy, not unhealthy. And the way to make your marriage healthy is by having a vertically healthy relationship with God. And the way to maintain a vertically healthy relationship with God is by obeying his commands, primarily being love. And the way to love other people, particularly your spouses, is by remembering just how loved you are. And there is no better picture of it than the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I wanna pray for every marriage here every soon-to-be marriage as well. And I am praying that you would help them bloom. And I am praying that you would be the center of all marriages. And I'm praying for both husbands and wives 
that both people would take their relationship with you seriously and that they would take their relationship with one another very seriously. Um, give us the fuel that we need. Melt our hearts with how much you love us so that we can melt one another's hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.